COVID-19 strains are hitting the United States. One from Manaus, Brazil, where over 75% of residents had already had COVID-19, suggests the virus is evading natural immunity. That strain was found in Minnesota last week. We've got not one, but two new COVID vaccines on the horizon. Both are quite effective, but not as much against the new variants. And yet, cases look to be on a consistent decline around the country, which remains really hard to fully explain. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And as always, I'm going to do my best to explain it. To be totally honest with you, this is the most confusing moment of the pandemic. There's good news and there's bad news. I always like the bad news first, so that's how you're going to get it. First, there's this. Tonight, health experts say dangerous COVID variants could push the country to a powerful new surge in a matter of weeks. The South African variant of the virus has now been found in two people in South Carolina. We are going to see something like we have not seen yet in this country. There are now several new variants, and they continue to pop up. Initially, there was the variant shown to be up to 30% more transmissible from the UK, B117. This variant made landfall in the US way back in December and appears to be spreading across the country. Another variant from South Africa, B1351, shares many of the same mutations as B117 from the UK, but emerged independently. This one made landfall last week. And then there's the variant out of Brazil called P1. Right now, hospitals in Manaus, a city of 2.2 million in the thick of the Amazon rainforest, are filling up with this new variant. And here's why this one's particularly worrying to me. More than 75% of Manaus residents had already had COVID-19, enough to reach the herd immunity threshold most epidemiologists would set, meaning that this variant is now resistant to the natural immunity we acquire from getting the disease. This variant, it was discovered in Minnesota last week. As of now, there is no evidence that any of these variants can fully evade vaccine-acquired immunity. But both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are less effective against the UK and South Africa variants. And both companies are working up boosters to account for it. But here's the thing. It's not all bad news. Cases are down about 35% over the last two weeks. And they're down everywhere, in every single state. As I mentioned last week, it doesn't mean that cases are down permanently. Don't forget what happened over the summer. But for now, it's reassuring. So how do we square it? Here's my best interpretation. I think that cases are declining for a few reasons that are working hand in glove. First, we're making good choices. We're wearing masks, washing hands. We're learning a lot more about how to live with the virus, living our lives while maintaining physical distancing. We're choosing not to do the things that are simply not safe, like gathering together in small groups, and we're doing the things we need to do, like send kids to school more safely. Second, herd immunity isn't a black and white thing. It happens bit by bit. Every single person who acquires immunity increases the overall immunity of our herd. And as more people recover and more people get vaccinated, there are fewer people for the virus to infect. But if we move too slowly, it's possible that the virus could continue to evolve, possibly evading a variant that can eventually evade vaccine immunity altogether. That's why we're not even close to being out of the woods. Like I said last week, we're in a race. Vaccines versus variants. The faster we get people vaccinated, the fewer and fewer avenues the variants have to turn, and the fewer and fewer bodies they have to evolve in. So we can't pull up now. We have to keep making smart choices, and we have to keep ramping up vaccines. But even as we try to outrun this virus with our vaccines, we can't seem to outrun our other pathologies. Racism. Here, too, it's rearing its ugly head. An analysis by Kaiser Health News showed that in all 16 states that have stratified vaccine rates by race, 
Black Americans are less likely to be vaccinated than whites. In some cases, two to three times less likely. In Pennsylvania, for example, where 1.2% of white Pennsylvanians have been vaccinated, only 0.3% of black Pennsylvanians have. If you're doing the math, that's a quarter as many. Black Americans are being hit twice by systemic racism. First, because of the consequences of segregation and long-term disinvestment in predominantly black communities, distribution of these vaccines in the black community has been particularly slow. And because of the consequences of systemic exploitation of black bodies by the biomedical establishment, which we've discussed on this pod in the past, black folks have been understandably hesitant about taking a vaccine that was developed in less than a year. And telling black folks to just trust the science erases the history of all the times that science betrayed that trust. A few weeks back, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Kazmike Corbett, a lead vaccine researcher at the NIH who led on the development of the Moderna vaccine. We talked about institutionalized racism and trust in the vaccines. This week, we're building on that conversation with Dr. Mary Bassett, director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard and former health commissioner of New York City. Dr. Bassett famously made headlines when she declared racism a public health issue in the New England Journal of Medicine during her time as health commissioner. We talk more about how racism has shaped the pandemic after the break. My guest today is Dr. Mary Bassett, and she's the former health commissioner for the city of New York, as well as the director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Bassett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Abdul. I really want to step back and get your perspective just you know, on this moment and frame it in the work that you did as health commissioner for one of America's largest cities, what was it like to be the health chief in a city as large, diverse, and dynamic um, as New York? And what does that tell us about the work that cities are, are trying to do right now uh, in, in the frame of this pandemic? Well, you know, New York City has a wonderful health department and a long legacy of excellence. What I try to do as New York City's health commissioner was really bring a new kind of focus on the idea that the mayor brought to his position and what won him the election is that New York City had become two cities, uh, a city of the rich and the poor. Mm. Uh, as you say, it's the only megacity in the United States that had a population of 8.5 uh, million people uh, when I was there. Uh, but 40% of the population lived at or near poverty, and the vast majority of them were people of color. So bringing that reality front and center to the work of the New York City Health Department was uh, a key part of what I wanted to do. And I thought I would be focusing on the things that we focused on with the Bloomberg administration, who used tools of policy and other tools of government, taxation, procurement, to tackle the scourge of non-communicable diseases, things like obesity and uh, tobacco use that are important um, risk factors. But of course, my tenure was really uh, instead uh, headlined by a variety of microbial threats. The first one was Ebola. Can you walk us through that experience? Uh, you, you were health commissioner during Ebola. What's it like to lead a city health department in the middle of an infectious disease scare like Ebola? 
I was really proud of the health department. I never had any doubt of the department's technical ability to uh, respond to the Ebola pandemic. And I was, what I really wanted to make sure was that we, we did it in a way that was consistent with the values of the department of equity, of not allowing any people to be victimized on the basis of who they were. We also had the advantage of having a, a department that had been quite independent over the years. So while we were hearing uh, from Atlanta that just about any hospital could cope with a patient with Ebola, we decided that we better have one hospital, mm. which we were sure could handle a patient who was infected with this really virulent virus that has a much, not unlike the current pandemic, uh, it, was, it has a very high case fatality rate. So we had uh, begun months before we got our one patient with Ebola to make sure that we had the procedures and the um, materials in place to have one hospital. And as it turned out, and this wasn't just the city that decided this, uh, there was only one hospital in New York City that was ready to receive a, a patient. That was uh, Bellevue Hospital, but long viewed as the flagship of the public hospital system. So the private hospitals were not ready. It was the public hospital system that was ready mm. and uh, received uh, this young doctor, Craig Spencer. So uh, we were able to prepare and we did that because we uh, had an excellent communicable disease group that said, you know, let's make sure we're ready. And we didn't just put the paper plans in place. They practiced. We ran trial drills. So when the, the patient came, we were ready. Uh, but then we did other things. I, I actually sent a note out to the health department asking uh, if there were people who had contacts with particularly the Liberian community in New York City, uh, because uh, that was one of the places in West Africa where the pandemic was raging. Let's remember, it was those countries that really bore the brunt of, of Ebola. Uh, so we reached out to those communities, said that we were determined not to see them stereotyped and discriminated against that we wanted to give them information because we knew they were talking to people back home and might have better communication than the ministries of health and in these countries. So that's what we did. Uh, we held town halls uh, in all uh, the boroughs that had African communities. The leadership of the New York City's African immigrant community came into the health department to meet with us. So these are the sorts of things that I'm not sure would have happened if we didn't have the framework that we were placing equity at the center. There are two things about your answer that I really want to um, draw out, which I really appreciate is, number one, there was a lot of preparation that went into anticipating what might happen, thinking through where Ebola might hit, thinking through what communities would be affected, either through the virus itself, but also from the, the, the social fallout of the virus. And then the investment in public goods and public services that are critical to uh, intervening to save uh, and protect the, the public's health. How do you feel like our national disinvestment in public health uh, has left us without the ability to do that um, in, in the context of the present pandemic? 
Well, I mean, we've seen an underinvestment in states and local health departments. New York City was a very large local health department that's been going on for decades with a decline in the budget uh, over time. And, and that we felt during this pandemic, rickety infrastructure, outmoded uh, information technology. And of course, we had a federal government that was determined to uh, shift to the states and local jurisdictions all responsibility. Uh, so instead of saying this is one country, we need one plan, uh, we were hearing, you know, y'all are sort of on your own. And these were agencies that just did not have the resources, either technology or, or human resources. Uh, and it showed. One of the major interventions that you made, um, not just for the city of New York, really, but for the way we think about our responsibility to public health and addressing the the, the things that threaten it, uh, was the declaration that you made of of racism and in particular systemic racism as a public health issue. Yeah. Um, and I remember uh, I was in graduate school during a, a large part of your uh, time at the health department. I remember reading that paper and recognizing how you'd connected so many important issues. Can you speak to what you mean when you say racism is a public health issue and how that's played out, you know, particularly in the context of this pandemic? Well, I was referring at the time to the whole movement for Black Lives that was exploding on our streets, uh, but I was basing it on the data. And one of the things that I really liked about the executive order that uh, was assigned by President Biden, by the way, is that he really um, elevated the importance of having disaggregated data. So we had data in New York that showed um, that the racial divide was longstanding and, and large. And just a few subway stops apart could mean practically a generation in life expectancy in New York City. So this is not only a problem of police-involved killings. Uh, this is a problem of all the many things that make people die before their time. And that's why it's a public health issue. Uh, the whole goal of public health is to ensure that people have the longest, healthiest lives that they can achieve. And we have not been assuring that for communities of color. And the reason is not that people make bad choices or that they don't follow instructions. Nobody chooses to live in a segregated neighborhood. Uh, nobody wakes up and says, I want to go somewhere where there are no supermarkets, no parks, where it's not safe for my kids to play. These are phenomenon that exist because of bad policies and uh, bad programming that have made communities disadvantaged for generations. So that's what it means. It says we're going to say that we can do something about this. We can do something about it within our own agency. We can do something about it by educating the people who work at the agency, where the leadership did not look like the city of New York. And we can do something about it by looking at how we spend our budget, how we direct our programming, uh, and we can speak out about it and talk about the need to go even further with education, access, labor market, protection of a living wage, um, so that people in health can speak out uh, even when we can't, for example, legislate that there be a living wage. We can talk about how important it is 
So now all those are part of what it means to make racism a public health issue. Mm. I really appreciate that. I, you know, in, in one of the important nuances of what you're saying here, that has differed quite a bit from where the conversation in public health has been is that it's not about race. It's about racism, right? And the only reason that race pops up in all of our epidemiologic analyses as a metric for uh, shorter lives and in more uh, illness is because of racism, right? It's it's like, you know, if, if racism is the magnet in your metal, then of course um, the magnet is, is going to have an impact, even if it might not to plastic or to wood. And so um, <laughs> the point here is that it is about the, the circumstance. It's about the world as it is constructed. Um, and that shapes the lived experience of black folk and, uh, and people of color generally. And there was a really, I think, important paper um, that former Surgeon General David Satcher wrote uh, way back in 2005. And he looked at the, the number of lives that we could save if we were able to reduce the black mortality rate so that it was the same as the white mortality rate over the past 40 years. Yes, it made it 85,000 lives. And the, the reason I come back to that, and listeners have heard me quote that um, paper before, uh, is because we have to understand that there's a myriad number of mechanisms by which racism shapes your life. If it's not, you know, the direct racism, the direct experience of racism, which tends to be the part that people see, it's the way that it shapes your access to a good school. It's the way that it shapes your access to good uh, breathable air or, or drinkable water. It's the way that it shapes uh, your interaction with the criminal legal system. It's the way that it shapes the way that you're taught to think about yourself because you've seen people in positions of power and privilege that look like you or or you haven't. And, and I think calling out that racism and recognizing that even if we can't even trace all the ways that it shapes uh, whether or not you have access to a long, healthy life, that we know that it does across all of them, um, whether that we can identify them or not. And I, I wanted to ask you, right, because the conversation that we've had around COVID-19, I think importantly, has brought to the fore the conversation that we should have been having for a long time, independent of a major pandemic, about the differential experience of public health access among black and brown people versus white people. And early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation about quote unquote pre-existing conditions. And um, I used to get real real upset uh, when I'd hear that, right? Start throwing things at my TV because um, any any modicum of curiosity should force you to ask, well, why are there differences in pre-existing conditions? Um, how do you feel like we've gotten it right? And how do you feel like we've gotten it wrong when it comes to thinking about intervening on uh, racial disparities when it comes to COVID? Well, I think if anything, the, the present pandemic has displayed how durable uh, the racial hierarchy is in the United States. Mm. Uh, we, we started seeing these racial disparities very early. I mean, before mask wearing was recommended, before the bulk of the population uh, really had taken on board that what we're supposed to be doing, keeping apart from people, washing your hands, avoiding indoor places that are crowded. You know, before anybody had really taken that on board, we were seeing these large differences. And that said to me at the outset that these are structural, uh, not behavioral mm. in origin. So what you've just said, all the myriad ways that racism functions is why we're now using the phrase structural racism. This isn't about a thousand private prejudices. Mm. Uh, this isn't about just interactions between single human beings. It's the way in which our society has these historically rooted, contemporarily reproduced, institutionally based, embedded in our culture. Some people say, you know, it sounds like, Mary, you're saying it's just in the air. And, well, it is in the air. 
Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't tackle it. I think we shouldn't pretend that we can't fix this. It'll be hard. Um, but as Reverend Barber often says, racism had a beginning and it will have an end. And it's up to all of us to, uh, to make sure that we make that clear. I think Shirley Chisholm was the one, and we should always remember her as the first really prominent woman candidate um, for the presidency of this country, that racism has been so longstanding that it's come to seem almost natural. Mm. These disparities are kind of boring almost to people. Uh, but COVID has shown how lethal it is. Uh, we have tens of thousands of lives that would ha not have been lost if we didn't have the racial gaps. You know, the New York Times did this thing where they added it up since 1900. I don't know how they did it. But that was 8 million excess deaths wow. that uh, occurred among people of African descent uh, compared to whites, you know, by applying... Uh, the mortality rates to of uh, whites to blacks and seeing what the difference would have been. It added up to 8 million lives lost. Wow. Um, that's not acceptable in a democracy. No, it's not. And um, one of the ways that we're seeing historical racism rear its ugly head in the present is around trust in the scientific process and the vaccine. And for a lot of black folks, the history that we consider around the biomedical establishment includes decades of exploitation of black bodies at the hands of people who had sworn to protect the health of others. And one of the guests that we had the privilege of speaking to was Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, who is a leader on the NIH team that helped to develop the Moderna vaccine. And we spoke a bit about, about what it will take to earn the trust back of Black communities who are inheriting the, the generational trauma of being abused by institutions that were supposed to protect them. I'd love to get your perspective uh, as someone who is both a health commissioner thinking about the operations uh, of vaccine deployment and um, about public communication, and also someone who spends her time thinking about health and human rights now uh, as an academician. Uh, what will it take for us to be able to inspire trust in these vaccines that are so new but so necessary? And what does it tell us about the lasting consequences of racism into the future? I thought that what Kissy Corbett said was really great, that we should not only be talking about people's mistrust, which, after all, is not some kind of psychological twerk. Uh, that's not the right word, but uh, it's not like people have just some kind of weird mindset. It's based on historical facts. Mm -hmm. But she says we shouldn't just talk about that. We should talk about making institutions trustworthy. And that is an important goal, but it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so part of it is, you know, getting people who are trusted and talking to them and convincing them to announce their intention to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Another part of it, to be honest, watching what's unfolding in this last month um, is to make sure that it's convenient to be vaccinated because they're now, you know, all these stories about how difficult it is 
to try and locate a place to get the vaccine. And people get up at five in the morning and go wait for hours and hear that it's run out. And then other places they're distributing it and they're not enough people. And this type of um, chaos uh, is already resulting in huge disparities by race in the 12 states that have made the data available. And of course it's vaccination, not the vaccine sort of out there that will protect us and change the course of the pandemic. So we got to make it, uh, build people's confidence. Um, And there are people who are expert in communication, who will talk to the people and the institutions which are already trusted and try and win their support. Uh, But it has to be paired with with it being possible to be vaccinated, um, because that also will feed into a narrative of, of mistrust. So I, you know, really hope that uh, government will see its responsibility to make sure this is convenient. Uh, my sister, not to reduce us to anecdote, uh, told me that she spent an entire day trying to get an appointment for my mother, who is 92. And, you know, she had the time to do that. Imagine that you're working two jobs, that you have a family with children at home to look, you know, not everybody has that kind of time. Not everybody can get in a car and sit in line for six hours. And these are barriers that will have a disparate impact. First come, first serve is always inequitable Mm -hmm. because the people who can show up first are people who have resources already. Mm. That's an important and powerful reminder. Um, You spend a lot of your days thinking about the intersection between health and human rights. And for a long time, there was a tradition, um, you know, founded in colonialism, where we always sort of projected that over there, whatever over there meant, right? Um, So, you know, the kinds of places that my family came from. Um, and And I think the moment is forcing us to take a good long look in the mirror, yeah. given what we we saw on January 6th and the threats to our democracy. And, you know, I've spoken quite a bit on this podcast about the critical role of democracy in shaping the kinds of mechanisms uh, that force leaders to be accountable to the well-being of the public. Um, and we've seen those break down, uh, whether in, you know, emphatic ways, like happened at the Capitol, or in more mundane and esoteric ways, as has happened the entire last year when we've been trying to face a pandemic down with a president who could care less about the well-being of the people he's sworn to serve. Um, How do you think about this political moment, our political process, and what are your hopes and and your fears right now as you think about the situation? Well, first, you you talked a little bit about health and human rights, and the right to health was embedded in in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a wonderful document, and It covers all sorts of things that are also relevant to health, the right to dignified work, and the right to health is there. And it's also in the charter uh, of the World Health Organization, which we've thankfully announced our intention to rejoin as a nation. Uh, But there was another story that has always gone with the U.S. engagement with human rights of the nine major sort of contracts or conventions on human rights. The the U.S. has only signed and verified three. So the United States is sort of an outlier in terms of it's the only one that hasn't signed on to the Convention of the Rights of of the Child, the only nation that is a member state of the United Nations that has not signed on to the idea that children are deserving to special protections by virtue of their status as children. 
so the U.S. has this record, and part of its record was its defense of racism and the its unwillingness to open its apartheid-like regime uh, up to the scrutiny of the world. So that's something that all of us who are committed to human rights need to reflect on. And I think that what's happened in recent years is that it's become clear that the U.S. has human rights issues of its own Mm. and uh, that we are not going to just talk about, you know, some kind of authoritarian regime thousands of miles from here. We have human rights issues of our own. Uh, you know, at the same time, we they, there's been a change in, in the administration in Washington, thank goodness. And uh, we are, you know, at a chance. We've seen a whole bunch of executive orders. I've, I've mentioned one that's uh, on the whole issue of, of equi- racial equity. We've had a, an inaugural address that for the first time used the words white supremacy and talked about structural racism for the first time in our history as a nation. Mm -hmm. So these words matter. Uh, At the same time, we have a really difficult situation of a mobilized uh, white supremacist base uh, that it's not clear what is going to satisfy them. And it's in a sense, you know, we're kind of backed into a corner of where racism has driven us as a nation. Uh, because we can have a democracy and have benefits that are made available only to whites. Mm-hmm. That's over. And uh, so, you know, I I think that we have seen that we're going to start strong and we need to really stay strong. This, there are certain things that, in my view, we should never negotiate with. And one of them is white supremacy. So that's how I feel about it. I, you know, I really would like to be more hopeful than that, uh, but uh, but I, I don't think that the, you know, 250 years of legal enslavement of human beings in the United States um, can just be turned into sort of a sideshow. It was foundational, mm. and it's going to take some real focus, uh, and it's benefit to all of us will be longer lives for everyone. Let's remember that U.S. whites aren't doing that well either. So we all stand to benefit. Well, I, I um, deeply, deeply appreciate uh, your perspective and really grateful to you for your insights today and your mentorship throughout my career. Um, and uh, I know that, um, that, that for a lot of us, uh, there is a, a reluctant optimism um, that's founded in both the frustrations of our history and our unwillingness to face that down, but also the recognition that the ideals that we hold, if anything, um, can force us to face them down and to correct them, not just in word, but in deed and in structure. So I'm really grateful to you and your work um, for encouraging all of us to to face them down with more certitude uh, and more honest reflection. And I'm really grateful to you for making the time uh, to join us. We, we finish always with one last question, which is, during this pandemic, how have you been spending your days? Well, I, you know, am privileged. Uh, so I get to stay inside most of the time. But I have to tell you, I think for all of us, that, you know, uh, we're looking forward to 
to being able to get outside some more. But in Boston right now, it's like under 30 degrees. So, well, I don't need to tell if you're in Michigan, it gets colder, I expect. (laughs) So I'm teaching on Zoom. I'm talking on Zoom. I talk to my friends on Zoom. Uh, So, you know, this has been um, a, a difficult time, even for people who are as lucky as I am. Yeah. And I think, I think you speak for a lot of us. Um, stay warm uh, and stay safe. <laughs> and we hope that uh, we'll get to see you in person uh, again very soon. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Bassett. My pleasure. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. President Biden signed an executive order to protect health care access last week. It rolls back Trump era efforts to undermine the Affordable Care Act and opens a three-month window for open enrollment on healthcare.gov for government-subsidized ACA programs. But we need more than that. As we talked about last week with Dr. Micah Johnson, there is no time like a global pandemic to truly realize the fact that healthcare is a human right and that we have to address the structural barriers to it for millions of Americans. That means guaranteeing healthcare beyond the private market and ensuring that every American, regardless of their health or wealth, has access to healthcare through Medicare for All. There are two new vaccines on the horizon. The first, from Novavax, is a two-dose vaccine that works differently from the other two currently being deployed. Rather than mRNA, it's a synthetic version of the coronavirus's spike protein. Overall, it was found to be 90% effective and 85% against the UK variant, but only 50% against the South Africa variant. The other is from Johnson & Johnson. This is a one-dose vaccine, which was found to be 72% effective in the United States, but far less so against the South African strain. Rather than mRNA or synthetic protein, This vaccine uses a piece of DNA that codes for the virus's spike protein, which is carried by a shell of a different virus. Neither has yet been approved by the FDA, but both together could vastly increase our capacity to get people vaccinated quickly. That's it for today. Next week, we speak with Crooked Zone Brian Boitler about his new podcast, Rubicon, and what the Biden administration must accomplish in the first 100 days on this pandemic. Oh, and don't forget, Crooked Store still has America Dissected swag. Our Science Always Wins hats are already sold out. But we've got a few more sweatshirts and t-shirts. They're going quick, so make sure to grab one before they're gone. Crooked.com slash store. And don't forget to pick up your copy of Medicare for All. That's MedicareForAllBook.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Aotu Guerra. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 